you know, you can say I don't care about culture wars, but if we're not able to have a conversation about reality, right? If we can't have a conversation about reality, we're not going to get mental health right. We're not going to get crime, homelessness, and, and without dealing with those things, you can't deal with the issues you really want to deal with. So I, what I would say is it affects everything. Not It's not just this tiny thing going on in academia and, and in, in comedy or something. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. Well, as they say in podcast world, we have a a lot of housekeeping for you today. Uh, First, as you'll soon see, this is the first episode of the podcast to be co-hosted with the philosopher Johnny Anomaly. Johnny was on the show as a guest previously and has written for ISF on our Substack. And so I'm really looking forward to having him ride shotgun here. I have no doubt his cheery American accent will add a little colour to my grey British ways. Uh, second, for those of you who do subscribe to the Substack, you will have seen that our relaunch week went very well. We put out many great pieces from very talented writers. There was The Man Who Needs a Statue, which was an excerpt from a new biography of Francis Galton, uh, Our Almost Perfect Meritocracy by Simon Wright, and a fantastic interview with myself and N.S. Lyons, uh, as well as launching a paid essay competition on the question, what is your most controversial opinion, which now has over 30 entries. Then a day after our relaunch week, Substack actually made us a featured publication. So that was totally unexpected and a big thank you to the Substack uh, team and a warm welcome to all of our new subscribers, especially all of the new paid supporters uh, as we Cannot do this without your support. Uh, But without further ado, it's time for me to introduce our guest for today. Uh, We are joined by Professor Eric Kaufman, who is a Canadian professor of politics at Birkbeck at the University of London. He's the author of several fascinating books, including uh, White Shift, that's his most recent book, and the subtitle is uh, Populism, Immigration and the Future of White Majorities, and another fascinating book called Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? Demography and Politics in the 21st Century. But today we're discussing two of Eric's fascinating reports for the Centre for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Those reports are titled Born This Way, The Rise of LGBT as a Social and Political Identity, and Diverse and Divided, a Political Demography of American Elite Students. Remember that you can get this podcast on all the major podcasting platforms, If you enjoy our work, please do consider supporting us on Substack or Patreon, where in return you will receive many supporter perks. But without further ado, I give you Professor Eric Kaufman. Okay, we're here with Professor Eric Kaufman. Eric, hello. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Matt. My pleasure. And Johnny as well. Yes. So this is the new plan. I'm going to help co-host the uh, the podcast with Matt. He's going to lead the way. I'll chime in with, uh, with some questions here. So. Yeah, so let's start with the report on LGBT identification. That's called Born This Way. The statistic that I found most interesting was uh, the following. A very liberal white female who supports the idea of shouting down a speaker to prevent them speaking has around a 7 in 10 chance of being LGBT. 
which is quite incredible. Um, I was wondering, what do you think is the most stunning finding of your report? Well, I guess the most stunning finding is that this tremendous surge in LGBT identification amongst young people uh, is largely about identity and politics rather than about sexual behavior. So, in other words, it's not, in, in what you might say, it's not really a real thing. It's much more of an identification. Um, so that's really it as far as the report. Now, there are also, the, the second part of the report is also the connection between LGBT identification uh, being politically on the left and also having poor mental health. Those three things are highly correlated in almost every data set. And I'm not convinced that the reason for that is experiences of discrimination leading someone to be both left-wing and uh, have poor mental health. I actually think there are other things going on which we've never really had a proper discussion of, which are more to do with anime and, and the loss of boundaries, which, which feeds into uh, both things. Eric, do you think this has anything to do with so-called victimhood culture, whereby especially white males and, and white females, they're sort of low on the victimhood hierarchy, and so there's not much left to self-identify as other than maybe gay or disabled. And you're actually seeing um, disabilities and mental disabilities as the new pronouns in biographies sometimes. Do you think that's part of it? Is that sort of an after yeah. effect? Yeah, I think there's really two. I mean, I have this the analysis of the the ideology we're living under, which I call left modernism, which is a fusion of two ideas. One is this idea of being anti-traditional and breaking down boundaries, which is the sort of modernism part. And then allied to that is this sort of egalitarianism and, and oppressor-oppressed uh, analysis based on identity, right. which is the left framework. And I think both are operating in this case. So we have, like particularly amongst white university students at elite colleges, you can see that politics really correlates very strongly with LGBT identity. You know, if you're very liberal on a seven-point scale, uh, you're much more likely to identify as as LGBT. And, and for example, if you support shouting down speakers, uh, you, you know, if you are a very liberal woman, female student who supports shouting down speakers, you've got a seven in 10 chance of identifying LGBT. So wow. I do think that, in, yeah, I mean, it's staggering, right? I mean, in certain circles, the political angle really counts, and I would say in more elite circles. But then you also have relatively less political groups, let's say African-American females without degrees who have a significant uh, LGBT component. And here I think the modernist thing comes in more, this idea that you're more interesting, you're different, you're special. Uh, you know, that's really, I think, what's driving it amongst that subset, you know, amongst people without, let's say, who are not in the elite context. So I think that that combination of the left and the modernism is really what's behind this. Yeah, just really anecdotally, quickly, I've, I've taught both at like elite universities and open enrollment uh, public universities. So to take two extremes, the University of Pennsylvania and University of Arizona. And first of all, it's, it's really clear at, say, Arizona, you just don't see very much LGBT activism. You don't see any protests, really, a lot of parties. But when I've asked sort of confidentially among Penn students that I've encountered what, what's going on with this LGBT stuff and all the trans issues, um, you know, people 
as you know, on campuses make claims, outrageous claims, like trans people are being murdered in the streets right. and these guys. And I just sort of, you know, yeah, what's going on here? Sincerely, what do you guys think? And and I get both kinds of answers. So I, I have heard that. Well, it's just a kind of rebellion. You know, it's just a way of breaking norms, which makes sense. It's like punk was in the 80s. Right. right. And, and, there's, and then there's some of the conformity stuff too, right? So women who want to conform to this new, this new code, so to speak. So. Yeah, I mean, you can see which, which subcategories have the, the most growth. So female bisexual is the biggest growth category. Yeah. Um, so it's in that bisexual category, you know, and what you, you know, if you really look at the numbers, what it is, is, is people who have kind of intermittent incidental thoughts, which yeah. probably has always existed, identifying themselves as bisexual. I mean, that's the lion's share of what's going on. You know, whereas if you actually can compare with, you know, in the general social survey, we've got the question about previous sexual partners, what what sex were they, you know, and you can see very clearly that there's, if you take, let's say, female bisexuals today versus 2008, uh, you know, in 2008, um, you would have had very few female bisexuals who would have had nothing but male partners over the last right. five years. <laughs> and now that's a that's about six right. and ten. So there's been this huge yeah. rise in people with, you know, women with conventional sexual behavior calling themselves bisexual. Yep. <laughs> so and so we have to ask ourselves why that identification has really really exploded. And, and uh, yeah, I think it's really for those those reasons you identify and that I identify. It's it's a combination of the cachet of being different, the kind of more modernist thing. It's like a punk, a goth thing, or on the other hand, right. this political statement. Yeah, and I kind of want to uh, tee you up here for a response I know sure. you'll, you'll want to give. Um, because the typical reaction from the more liberal end of the political spectrum is that what we're seeing here is simply uh, people feeling more secure with coming out. Uh, they would say, these people would say that society is still deeply transphobic and to a lesser degree homophobic, biphobic. And as people feel more comfortable in their environment, we naturally expect higher rates of LGBT identification Um do you want to explain why you think that isn't the case? Yeah, I mean, I think the trans thing has obviously attracted a lot of attention. I don't, I didn't spend as much time on that in the in the um, report simply because there isn't a ton of information. There's a little bit, um, and and, and it, what you see is the trans numbers on mental health and and in terms of political location look pretty similar to LGBT. And actually, if you look at the fire data on the students, where we've got both. Uh, gender with a non-binary category, and we've got uh, sexual orientation. There's a lot of overlap between uh, non-heterosexual sexual orientation and non-binary. And I think there's a lot of movement between those categories, actually. Um, what I would say is, I mean, on the trans thing, there's no question that they're going to, if they are you know, if they are visibly trans, they're going to stick out and, and they are going to be receiving discrimination in, in certain contexts. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and so I could kind of almost accept more for the for the trans uh, people who are properly trans and visibly trans that, that, you know, that that could be quite difficult. But I, what I see, actually, if we leave the trans to one side, is that for let's say a female bisexual who is essentially living a conventional life with conventional sexual partners, I mean, I'm, I I really struggle to see how they are really going to be victimized in everyday life. They're not visible in any real way, um, and yet that is precisely who is who is reporting the highest level of mental distress. Is people who don't. Whereas the 
you know, the gays and lesbians who are practicing actually have better mental health. And, and you know, if you think about, okay, the you know, gay men who are holding, you know, one man holding hands with another man, or maybe a, a female, a lesbian holding hands with another. I mean, that would be something that would be more visible out in public. So you might say it should be gay men that are going to, who are practicing uh, homosexuals who should be the ones experiencing by far the, the highest mental distress, if discrimination is the driver. Uh, and that's just not the case. I mean, the other thing is, if you look, there, there was a study, I think, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, of high school, uh, high school graduates or, or people in high school, and you could see that this association between homosexuality and mental health has actually increased at a time when society's become a lot more tolerant. It just doesn't really fit. So I, I, I find it a stretch, the, the argument that it's really about discrimination. And, and Yeah, yeah um, if I can chime in here, I was going to ask at the beginning, well, you know, we've got what look like alarming numbers. We go from, I don't know, 5 to 10% identifying as LGBTQ um, to 25%, even 40% at undergraduate elite liberal arts uh, institutions in the U.S. And you think, wow, this, this is a kind of moral panic or there's, there's some kind of social contagion going on here. We should really worry about it. But, but then I think, and there's a kind of dialectic going on here, then I think, well, well, who cares? Because after all, this may just be a kind of statement that I'm a rebel, I fit into this, this group. Like, who really cares about that? Um, it's kind of like when economists do public good surveys. How much would you pay to save this exotic species? And people say, I don't know, $20,000? Um, they wouldn't actually pay that. They just kind of make it up to sound like, well, I'm a generous person. I care about endangered species. But now, now I think, wait a minute. Actually, this is really important because what's going on, it sounds to me, like you're saying, is there some underlying mental health issues that this is, that this is masking, not mental health issues among the actual gay, lesbian population, but among those who now identify as that. So, so this is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the whole mental health, I mean, that is clearly a big cost. It is uh, now you, we can always have a debate over how much is it the case that people are saying they're ang anxious or depressed when people in previous eras would have just said, well, I'm sad or a bit worried. You know, so so, so part of it could be massaging these mental states into more serious uh, medical conditions. Um, I'm not qualified to know how much is real, how much isn't real. But let's say some of it is people working themselves up into a state. Uh, I don't know how much of it is. I mean, there are some hard measures around people cutting themselves. And, and you know, there are some hard measures that suggest an increase. So, and so I do think there's something there which yeah. needs to be addressed. And, and if we're in a culture that is really about transgressing boundaries and getting rid of these established roles that help people create stable identities, uh, then I think we're, we're actually doing something negative. And I, I think that's probably where it would be interesting to see some attention. I don't know if anything you might know or uh, if, if any research has been done. I, I really struggled to find anyone taking that kind of Durkheimian approach to say, well, it's a loss of you know, roles and boundaries that is in a way led to this anime, and that's that that's behind this. Other than Leah Greenfeld's book, which is more of a history, uh, I haven't I haven't really yeah. found anything that's contemporary. I don't know what you you think about that. 
Yeah, I don't have especially strong views on it. I haven't read much on it. I mean, I know a lot of people sort of in dissident right circles are blaming liberalism, and, and maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know, but the sort of the norms that have evolved in the West over the last, let's say, half century after birth control and so on, you know, you start breaking down more and more norms. And, um, yeah, it becomes pathological to the extent that a lot of ordinary people do want families and children and they want a stable identity. And now they're essentially being told, well, the opposite is actually good for you. And, you know, of course, people have cited statistics in the U.S. that female happiness is going down, not up in terms of subjective well-being. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not an expert on this. I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It strikes me as one of these areas where, if we didn't have a skewed academy, yeah, you'd have a significant research program on this, right? Yes. I mean, even as a thesis that might not hold, but let's test it out. I mean, it's it's got a long pedigree, but it doesn't seem like anyone's interested. There's a narrative which says, you know, there's discrimination, and that's why you've got mental distress amongst LGBT people, and that's it. You know, we just got to have more counseling, and that's it. So, Eric, I think it would be good for people to hear your response to the economic explanation that's often given as a response to these cultural um, oddities that we're seeing. So, for example, people say, look, young people almost everywhere in the world, major cities, outside major cities like the satellite counties around London, they find it hard to get on the housing ladder. They find it hard to go through these traditional milestones, these milestones that their parents would have gone through. Um, And if you can't find that basic level of stability in owning a house, which is obviously quite useful if you want to have children, right, and you give them that community, then how do you expect people to become naturally more social, socially conservative? And so this is advance as an explanation for some of the cultural um, changes and malaise, if you want to put a negative negative spin on it, that we're seeing. Uh, do you want to explain your, your view on this? Yeah, I mean, generally, whenever I've looked at these sorts of correlations, very little comes out. And I'm broadly speaking of the view that the economic structural side of things is a very weak, only weakly and orthogonally related to many of the cultural things we see, rise of wokeness, for example, or, or, or the LGBT rise. Or for, and, and so I think, you know, you can look at Japan or Korea, places that don't have this culture, that have very high property costs, you know, it's very hard to get established, I'm sure, in Hong Kong on the property ladder, um, and and likewise, you could do an analysis here where we took people who were securely on a property ladder, those who were not, uh, those who were even young people who were married and had, had kids and who were not. I mean, we don't see massive differences in their attitudes on these things. And and I think, again, that gets us, get me back to the view that this is almost entirely sort of sui generis cultural developments and not really related to what's going on in the economy. A lot of people find that really hard to accept, that something could not be a mix of this and a mix of that. You know, I I had the same thing when we talked about the rise of national populism and everyone's, no, it's got to be partly economic, but but no, actually, it's almost got, it's almost, well, very, very little to do with person's economic position, if at all, when you crunch the numbers. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because, again, a lot of those Eastern societies, they have words, they have phrases associated with um, men who are, well, maybe we would call them soy boys or or neats, you know, not in education, employment or training. These men who have kind of uh, taken the black pill of... existential dread and despair there is no future for them they can't expect to get women to get a girlfriend to have sex um 
And so they kind of drop out of society. And again, this is uh, again maybe partially explained by the fact that they find it hard to have that economic stability. I mean, I think it would be very interesting because you have some societies like Singapore where it's all public housing. And I don't know the exact process by which people acquire those public homes. Uh, I think it would be very interesting interesting to compare Singapore and Hong Kong, let's say, or a place that, where there's a lot more private ownership. I, I, let me just say that I would be extremely surprised if this has a huge amount to do with it. And I know that's you know, counterintuitive. It's a bit like the Conservative Party here in Britain, which is doing terribly with young people and thinks, oh, well, once they're on the property ladder and they've got a job and they're married, they'll vote for us. No, I think that's got almost nothing to do with it. I think, um, so yeah, I guess I'm quite skeptical. I mean, it already there's there's a lot of variation too. Don't forget amongst young people, some come from wealthy families, where you know they may not initially be able to get on the property ladder, but they know they're going to get a hand up. Uh, others genuinely don't don't come from that kind of wealthy background. But I think someone who's from a wealthy background who just happens to be renting mentally. I mean, I don't think they're insecure and I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I just, I haven't seen any data that would suggest that the, the young people who actually have achieved some of these materials markers have any different outlook on the world. Now, of course, someone could always come back and say, oh, yes, but when you get a critical mass of them, they'll change the culture. It's not impossible, but I, I guess my initial take is I'm quite skeptical. So I think this has been quite a deliberate cultural program that has started in academia. We could see it even in the use of social justice terms um, like patriarchy or white supremacy, uh, which was already current in, in academia. You could see it, there was a study of what David Rosado did where he, he uh, I think he analyzed like 75 million academic abstracts. And you could see the use of these social justice terms was already pretty high in the 80s and 90s in academia. And then 2010s, suddenly they break into the media and the media is converging with academia and this is entering the bloodstream of society. So yeah, I think uh, it's a cultural transmission belt really from the universities to mass media into the youth culture. Uh, that's sort of how I see it. Do you think it would be fair to use the term concept creep here? Yes, I, I guess it, it's a form of concept creep. You're right. I, I guess... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's a little bit different from the conventional Haslam kind of concept creep around, uh, which is very more, much, I see as very much more political when you're defining racism and harassment to mean, you know, things that they didn't used to mean as part of a political project. Whereas I guess bisexuality, the way that's expanded in its meaning, I don't know if it comes from the same deliberate political project. I'm not sure there were academics trying to say, oh, these people who intermittently feel something, they're actually bisexual. Uh, whereas I think with racism, you can definitely see the attempt to, to say, oh, microaggression, that's racism, and, and, and incarceration differences by race. So I think right. the, the yeah, I, I'd say it's a, a version to some degree, a family resemblance, but it's not the same process. Yeah, good. Yeah, and I guess um, going back to the previous point, the 2010 sees an explosion of these terms, and we've we've all seen you know these engrams on on Google, right. New York Times, where circa 2010, 2012 it explodes. Probably it's it's Twitter and other social media amplifying what was already a problem in the universities. Then it gets to journalism and everything else. Is that more or less your view? 
Yeah, I, and you see it very clearly in the models. I mean, Rosado, he did, yeah. I think, sort of 30 million newspaper stories and 75 million academic abstracts from about 1970 or 1980. Yeah, and, and what happens is just mid-2010s, you start slowly, 2013 to 15 is the first rise. And then I don't know if it's Trump, if it's, you know, essentially there's an, another acceleration after 2016. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're living through that acceleration. What's new, I guess, since 2017 is a kind of backlash, the, the backlash terms like, you know, social justice warrior and woke and all these things have started coming in. Uh, but, other, but basically, yeah, we're living through this, this kind of cultural efflorescence, uh, this awakening which I think has its own internal dynamic, and you can trace it intellectually. I mean, even the term racism, uh, if you look at Google Ngram, you can see there's like three awakenings, late 60s uh, with the student revolts, and then you've got the political correctness coming in late 1980s, early 90s, and then the Great Awakening. So you've had these three, it's, it's, it's periods of effervescence uh, similar to the you know the the great awakenings and if you're familiar with the U history of right. u.s protestantism <laughs> I, I think that largely explains how we got here uh and culture has its own dynamic it unfolds like a like an algorithm yeah i was going to ask you about this eric because on the one hand we see these signs of a backlash which is fantastic right there right probably are more young, especially white males who are just kind of sick of being blamed for all the world's problems. And, you know, they're, they're, they're not interested in identifying as transgender. If anything, their right. transgression is to be a, a straight white <laughs> Christian or something like that. It's like the new rebellion. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, you know, some people say, oh, this is good. We're turning the corner. When you actually look at the institutions, and this goes back to your previous report last year, you see the skew among faculty in terms of left to right getting worse. Um, the younger faculty are far less tolerant than older faculty. And then in your new report, which I wanted to address, um, diverse and divided, you apply the same analysis to students and you, do, you survey students and it's going the same direction. So if the universities and, and journalism and, and even the Federal Reserve, which now is is supposed to not just regulate prices or to keep prices constant, but to promote diversity and equity and inclusion. That's part of their official mission now. If this is happening at the same time that there is this backlash, is the backlash going to be effective? Like what, what's going to happen if the institutions are sort of captured already? Yeah. I mean, my general view is that the backlash, if it becomes political, which it's starting to in the U.S., if you get the Republican Party or a conservative party getting serious about these issues and elevating them, then I do think that change can happen. And I think yeah. you can, I think, for example, government has a lot of levers to pull, especially where it controls funding. Yeah. Uh, say public universities, they can find, like the, the UK's Higher Education Freedom Bill has provisions in it to find universities that aren't protecting and promoting academic freedom. Uh, and I think that would knock them into line, get rid of the most egregious you know, platformings, and it's already making a difference. Yeah. Um, I think you could go further. I think you could institute political neutrality rules and enforce them much more strenuously, and also yeah. in schools. Um, that takes organization. It takes getting your people in. It takes focus. Uh, so, yeah, I do think there is definitely the possibility, if there's mobilization, around these issues to make a difference 
to at least the institutions to, to make them look more like the general public. But the, but the problem is the young population is vastly more intolerant. Uh, and that is simply because that's how, they, how they've been socialized. That's so, for right. example, I give you a question on a report which hasn't yet been released here in Britain uh, with Paulus Exchange on uh, public opinion. You know, you can say, uh, should J.K. Rowling be dropped by her publisher? Uh, amongst people over 50, it's like 85 to 5, no. Amongst people 18 to 25, it's 50-50. You know, wow. that, that, or, or James DeVore in, in the U.S., like two-thirds of 18 to 25 say it was the, the right de- decision to fire him versus sort of a third or, or less of the you know, over 50s. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's a time bomb. And those people, as they get jobs, I don't think they're going to change their views because I don't believe this is material. I think it's how they were socialized. So they're, as they become Google employees, <laughs> they're going to bring this ideology in and they're going to demand that the management uh, essentially take their view of things and not allow people to, to have their freedom of speech so, yeah. I guess, I mean, I'm curious what you think about, let's say, well, Elon Musk buying Twitter or, again, some of the more formal mechanisms like governments can either defund public universities or tie funding to, you know, um, abiding by, in, in the U.S. at least, the First Amendment or tying um, student loans to, to the same thing. So universities right. have to act in a certain way to qualify for federal loans. That, that all makes sense. Those are levers. But it seems to me... One source of optimism, and I'm curious what you think about this, is, again, whether it's Elon buying Twitter or potentially a new Internet Bill of Rights, if the Republicans take the White House in 2024 and Congress, there might be some will to do this. You know, one one vision of the future that's a little bit optimistic is people can overcome their programming once they encounter actual free speech. Many of these people, as you know, they grew up during the Great Awakening, they really haven't had exposure to other points of view. And maybe we get a preference cascade whereby, you know, a few elite people who are interesting, trustworthy, they have they have a message that's plausible, they gain some foothold on some of these platforms, and then other people start following, and you, you just don't know where it goes from there. It might be a social contagion in the opposite direction. I think that's really interesting, and I think it could happen that way. I mean, I think... You know, there are straws in the wind. I mean, you see interesting things to some degree, you know, like in Canada, the younger people seem to be uh, somewhat more inclined toward the conservatives than I mean, than older people. It's really odd. I don't know exactly what causes these shifts. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I certainly would say that that is potentially possible. Um, however, it's worth noting that the current education system, and I think this happens mainly in the schools, by the time they arrive at university, they're already socialized. I mean, this is one thing yeah. that I've been noticing in, the, in some data that I've collected recently. Uh, and in fact, maybe today there's going to be a piece out in City Journal, actually, based on some of our research on the U.S., uh, the impact of um, critical race theory and critical gender theory exposure on young people um, is real. So they came, yeah. the ones who are, who are more heavily exposed are more likely to take those views of race and gender, the, you know, white supremacy and, and, and many genders and all of that. So these schools are having a big impact. And at the same time, we've, we've seen studies where if you teach kids about the First Amendment, what the law says, they become more pro-free speech. And so I think a lot, you know, a lot could be done with a very much more interventionist approach 
approach to education curriculum. The, the education space is ripe for very, very extensive intervention. And, and I'm kind of more critical of the approach that just says, oh, well, we'll just cut it. And, you know, won't it be great if we have school choice? And I don't think that's actually the right approach. I think that's kind of a libertarian approach. It's not going to work, I think. I think you've got to actually be very government interventionist, I'm afraid to say, where you go in and say, this is impartiality. This is how we define political impartiality. So if you say white supremacy or white privilege, that is po not political impartiality. You can't say that. And this is how we define racism. Systemic racism is not part of racism. That's a political stance. You can't do that without presenting the other side. So we have, you know, we have to get down to that level of intervention in the schools. And there may have to be some heads rolling of people who refuse to abide by that. Just to introduce the concept that you're going to be impartial and you're not going to just teach what you want. Um, and, and that's the kind of political action that, that is probably what's going to be necessary to turn the ship around. I just don't think ha you know, having the luck to have Elon Musk show up, uh, you know, you, for every Elon Musk, you're going to have 10 or 20 who are more or less beholden to the younger employees. I don't think it's a sustainable model. Yeah, yeah, agree. Eric, I was going to ask you, yeah, about this diverse and divided report. So one of the things that you just mentioned is it looks like people are being socialized before universities. And one of the most interesting findings, to me at least, from, from your report is that women are moving, of course, steadily to the left. We can observe that. That's, that's obvious. You just put some numbers on it. But you mentioned that um, it's not a good predictor of that, whether those women you know, we're educated in private or public schools or even homeschooled, that like almost the same percentage are identifying as LGBTQ or moving to the left politically. And so it doesn't seem to be just a peer effect in college or just an indoctrination effect in college, but it looks like it's happening far before. Is it, is it Hollywood? Is it just social norms? Is it social media? What's going on there? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question, Johnny. I mean, uh, you know, more and more I'm coming to the view, and I think the studies back this up, that university itself doesn't do a whole lot. Um, you can look at people who, uh, you know, if you ask them, are you going to go to university in a year? Like if they're taking a year out before they go to university, their views are the same as the people who are attending. Um, so yeah. I don't actually think the university is doing much, but I do think the schools do something. Again, that's still not the major effect. The major effect is the youth culture, um, which ultimately comes out of celebrity, social media, whatever. Um, and it seems to be this whole gender divide. You know, this is this is something that I'm seeing, you know, time and time again. Like in Britain, on the, a lot of these culture war questions, um, in people in their 18 to 25s, there's like a 50-point gap in that age group between men and women. Uh, you look at um, liberal conservative in U.S. among American students, you look at voting behavior. Like in Canada now, the polls, um, young people under 25 or, or even under 30, I think, men are about 50% voting for right-wing parties, women 25%. You know, it's like a 25-point gender gap. And, and I noticed that, of course, in the report. I mean, the gender gaps that we're seeing uh, on university campuses are, are absolutely massive. Um, and those have been growing since the early 2000s. And I think it's something to do with accepting or rejecting, if we want to put it crudely, a kind of feminized ideology, if you like, that's based on the care, harm, and equality foundations. And then that just sort of meshes better with women. I don't, I know there was some discussion, I can't remember, was it Richard Hanania, who, uh, who 
was it that was saying that essentially because we have more women in academia? Oh, no, it was Corey Clark. Corey well, Clark it, and Bo Weingart. Both. Yeah, it's both. Oh, both. I was okay. ask you about that. It's actually yeah. really four people. Clark and Weingart recently, yeah. Hanania before them, and also Amy Wax. So right, right. Okay. made prominent statements about this. As the university has had more women at all levels, it's become more feminized in its thinking, and there's less, less emphasis on truth, more on care and harm. So, yeah, what do you think about that? Is there yeah, I remember that? having this discussion with Corey and, and sort of my view was, again, as you'd imagine, more, more cultural. I was sort of saying, yeah. I think that there's an interaction here, which is that you know, even if you'd had 60% women back in 1970, I don't think that would automatically have produced wokeness. What I think what I think's occurred is that you know women will generally back the status quo ideology. Yes. Uh, that's how they're socialized, and so it's now the established orthodoxy. They'll back it to a greater extent. They'll be less likely to. Uh, to dissent, really, uh, than men be. You know, men are more likely to be contrarians, and I think that's yep. a big part of it. So it's it's the ideology interacting with the psychology. I think that explains it. I think if you were to just crudely, if you were to take women and their views in 1980 and just multiply that by however much their share has gone up, I don't think you'd explain more than a tiny bit of the variations off. Right, right, because, and this is a really interesting finding in, in the report Diverse and Divided, you, you say that in the 80s, in, in American universities anyway, I think females were only something like 25% self-identified on the left, and they weren't that much, there wasn't that big of a difference in their overall demographics. Maybe it was 40-60 instead of 50-50 or something, but they've shifted quite dramatically to the left over the last, say, 30 years, so. Yeah, because those uh, the, the HERI data go back to 1970, and you can see women are more conservative than men. Like in the late 60s, during the student revolts, you know, women were to the right of men. Because Very back then, I guess, yeah, I mean, because because I guess back then, you know, what was the dominant value system? There was still kind of religious, patriotic, and you know, so probably women were more behind that. Uh, women always have been more religious, at least in Christian and Jewish yep. societies. So. Um, and then what happens, you know, it's not really till after the George W. Bush era that you really start to see a consistent emergence of this gender gap. And it's initially only a few points and it's just widening and widening and, and well before Trump, by the way. So it's not about Trump. Uh, I don't think I think it's it I, predates. I really, I really like this point because, you know, those of us and I think you're included who see wokeism as a kind of religion, it captures the same psychology, the same needs. Well, if women are more religious, um, you'd also expect them to be more woke, and they certainly are. Um, so, so this is a, a really neat sort of explanatory variable. That that's a I've never thought about that, but th now that you state, I mean, it, that makes perfect sense in a way. Um, I think it's it's a combination of that and just backing whatever the status quo orthodoxy is. Women will tend to back it to a greater extent yeah. than men. So I think that's kind of it. But of course, there is this issue of women being more caring. But the reason I didn't find that as persuasive is, you know, how much do they care more about men who can't get lucky? You know, like, I mean, obviously, yeah. the question, it's like uh, Bloom's book on, on against empathy, right? I mean, if you if you're more empathetic to, let's say, historically disadvantaged race and sexuality groups, well, you're going to be less sympathetic to historically advantaged groups who may actually not be doing very well. So it's just, 
a question of who is your target. And, you know, some guy who's, who's, who's on the spectrum, uh, who happens to be white and, you know, has, is lonely, that's not going to get much sympathy. So it's, it's very much about the ideology structures, who you are going to be empathetic towards and, and who you're not going to be empathetic towards. Yeah, and on the religious point, maybe it's no coincidence that there's a lot of language policing. There's a, lot, there's a sense that if you say the wrong thing, like that's where we really nail you, right? It's not about what you meant or what the evidence is. It's like you've broken these taboos. It's a very religious mentality, right? And yeah. the more you expand concepts like microaggressions, you know, some of us just think, well, this is weird. Why are people suddenly talking about it? Well, within a religious standpoint, it makes perfect sense, right? That's the point of religion is to distinguish who, who's the in-group, who's the out-group, and to punish the out-group as the sinners that they are. It's not about evidence. It's about right. forming groups and coalitions. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, it's fascinating, the whole issue of taboos, right? And because and one of the points I make, actually, on the whole wokeness business is, you know, we, took, we focus a lot on the sort of blue-haired activists and yeah. the, the people who are shouting and, and, and stuff. But I think... What that misses is the tissue of public morality. It's a bit like saying, can we explain uh, religious fundamentalism without understanding religion? The religion that, let's say, everybody in a pious society buys into. So if the fundamentalist comes along and says, uh, separate men and women, no more dancing and drinking, because it says so in the Quran, uh, in a society that's, that's Muslim, it's very hard to argue against, because, yeah, you can look in the Quran and find it. So, So I think similarly with cancellation you know if it wasn't the case that society well beyond the the white hot woke activists didn't buy into racism and and, and sexism etc as some of the highest taboos then the woke wouldn't be able to to get people fired so and and actually if you look at the origin of these taboos that dates back much earlier like the mid-1960s if you look at Shelby Steele's book, White Guilt, which is fascinating on this, you know, suddenly in the U.S., this taboo comes. It didn't come in in Britain until more like 1980, by the way, or the 70s and 80s. But once that taboo comes in, I think that's a very important moment. So this is well before cancel culture in any serious way, although you did start to get the first drips of cancellation. So the Moynihan Report, 1965, the first kind of report that was shelved for this reason. I think that's a straw in the wind, and it's just scaled up really since. But I think what we, you know, unless we actually start to look more closely at these taboos, which many people will just buy into, well, we actually maybe we want to make those a bit more graduated, a bit more, a bit less black and white, and a bit more shades of gray, actually, to become a bit less susceptible to the entrepreneurs who are seeking to key in onto this. Yeah, Eric, what do you think the long-term consequences could be of this increasing moral chasm, this divide between men and women? It's very hard to say because what's very difficult to know is, is you, know, if men, you know, if we take the view that when men and women pair up and have families, I don't think it's because of the economics of this, but it could be the case that that's going to force, uh, it's going to force an encounter between viewpoints that might be productive and it might sort of take the edges off extreme uh, viewpoints. So I take a somewhat optimistic view that that at least the gender split isn't going to be persisting into the electorate as people age. Now, I could be wrong about I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be wrong to some degree about that. 
Um, my hope is, however, that because of the process of partnering, that that might reduce <laughs> somewhat. Um, I hope it does anyway. But I do think that as far as young people who are unattached and single, and that gap is going to remain. I just think it's so so fundamental. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if the battle of the sexes is going to last as people get older. I mean, one of the things you do see, by the way, is um, that housewives are very, very Republican, even when you control for things like religion and, and other things, you know, and so within women, I mean, you almost, I, I see very little of this literature in political science, the stay at home, uh, you know, stay at home women versus career women is not something that's analyzed very much. And yet the political differences are enormous. Um, and I guess the question is, is to what extent women will remain monolithic as they enter form partnerships. Uh, some of them become stay at home moms. Uh, you know, I think that'll probably mellow if I had to put money on it uh, a little bit. So maybe um, as a follow-up to that, maybe there are two elements that might mitigate some of the pathologies of, you know, 40% of people identifying as LGBT, that sort of thing, um, participating in victimhood culture. Maybe on the one hand, women entering their 30s and their biological clock ticking, there might be a cost to just sort of announcing that they're trans or queer or something like that, they really do need to partner up um, if they want kids anyway. And it may be that we can, as a society, impose costs for having kind of nutty beliefs. Um, that could be one <laughs> of those gentle nudges. You know, I mean, look, it's one thing to say that you're LGBTQ. It's another thing to actually sleep with members of, you know, whatever right. it is, the same sex right. and that sort of thing. I mean, that's a cost, at least for right. some. It's a benefit for others. So... You know, maybe along the lines that you suggested for universities, you can yank funding for certain programs or attach funding to others, like respecting free speech and so on. So, too, there could be gentle policy nudges that sort of encourage people to pair up or discourage, in other words, some of these nuttier views. It's a kind of social cost that you're imposing on them. But I don't know. It's just a suggestion. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm less worried about the gender LGBT thing. I, and I just think nature will take care of that in the sense of the biological clocks. You know, the people are going to want to have kids. Uh, not, you know, there will certainly be single people, but I'm, and I think as you know, the longer somebody is settled and, and has kids and how long can you keep up this fiction for? Eventually it'll go. I mean, you know, but, but I, I think, so I don't worry too, too much about about that eventuality, I guess. I, I, I think that, that, whereas I think the intolerance, the illiberal, uh, the progressive illiberalism, I don't see that going away. I mean, I, you can have a family and you can have kids and you can still believe that, you know, oh no, we can't allow someone to say uh, a woman is an adult human female. That's a, a micro, you know, that's harming someone's mental health. I mean, I can see the, the culture that sustains the enlightenment essentially fading away, but I can't see everybody becoming properly LGBT. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, can we also point out a weird methodological uh, critique here, which is, you know, self-report only has so much value, right? Women, shock horror, they lie, especially in their 20s, they lie to themselves. The culture is telling them they want one thing. We know that that is almost diametri diametrically opposed to how women have evolved. So there's this odd thing going on here where they may well phase out of what they are telling uh, interviewers, uh, you know, the, the surveyors, um, and we don't even know if that's really how they feel or if there, you know, there's uh, some type of desirability bias going on. But yeah, I just want to point that out. That's very important. Well, I, I would add, one thing I would would add to to what you just said is, 
So, for example, bisexuality has never been as much of a taboo as homosexuality. Homosexuality, you know, even lesbianism hasn't been that much of a taboo. These things are, in some ways, appealing to men. Uh, I, I think ultimately they don't really contradict um, largely heterosexual behavior. And, 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 and so, again, it's another reason why I just think longer term this is not really a particularly radical thing. The other thing, of course, is politically in terms of voting, as, as the report says, this shift to LGBT identity is so heavily siloed amongst very liberal people that it's got essentially no political consequences. It's not like people are identifying as LGBT, then deciding they're going to be very liberal, then voting Democrat. No, I think that that model doesn't really explain it. So if you look at amongst the very liberal, there's been this big expansion um, in LGBT identity. Amongst the other groups, ideologically, there's been almost no change. So all this radicalism uh, on the sexuality front is, is pretty contained politically. So I don't think it's got much of a, uh, an impact in terms of future politics. Yeah, Eric, I wanted to kind of end on this anyway. So this is a good segue. You're more worried about political divides, and I think that's right, That's than, than about you know people self-identifying as LGBT and that sort of thing. Um, that's more of a quirk of our age, maybe a, a symptom of some deeper issues, as you suggested. But you seem to share, yeah, more or less uh, Charles Murray's worry in coming apart that you know there's an increasing political divide in where people live, who they who they socialize with. You do mention, interestingly, of course, that in universities, people on the right are more likely to have diverse friends than people on the left. Mm. Uh, that would be interesting to explore. But bigger picture, in terms of the political divide, and you know, everyone, of course, talks about polarization within and between states and counties and so on. Why is that a worry? I mean, why, why even care? Um, I, I know we all have our reasons for that. Is it epistemic reasons, like you're less likely to encounter other arguments and other ways of thinking? Is it political violence that, the, that, that this is a risk of? Or what, what's, what's wrong with polarization and clustering along political lines? Well, I guess if each side has a very stereotyped view of the other, then, yeah, you have just a, a higher temperature of, of antagonism. I don't believe the civil war risk is a, is a proper risk. I mean, civil war studies, you know, there's so many different things you need to have a civil war. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess uh, you, know, you might say that one effect of this is we don't solve practical problems like infrastructure, things we, we should be focusing on to make society better. We're wasting our, yeah. our time on these other issues. Uh, having said that, actually, paradoxically, I, I do think that this is a battle for the, the foundations of our civilization. I mean, this is when, when people trivialize it and say culture war. Well, actually, you know, you're talking yeah. about freedom of speech, equal treatment, due process. You're talking about national, you know, whether you think your country is just a cesspit of racism and misogyny <laughs> and, and whether people are going to be attached to it and therefore be willing to pay tax and, and serve it. You know, so, so I think it's... It's a, a deep civilizational problem that is comes before and is more important, in my view, than a few uh, percentage points uh, of tax rates, uh, which is what obsesses yeah. a lot of uh, people. And I, and I think especially the conservatives. Now, in the U.S., I, it, it's more encouraging. But here in Britain, I mean, you still have a very sort of traditional economic libertarian type. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that the conservative party here is in such turmoil is because their MPs, all they care about is essentially – economic libertarianism and their voters are essentially culturally conservative um, and I think that's just going to generate more and more 
populist pressure because there was this right. mis misalignment. Yeah, I think what really needs to happen is you, we, you know, we have to actually elevate these cultural war issues because the public is essentially two to one against the, the woke position. That has to sort of become more front and center. And then we have to start getting at the education system and stop trying to turn the ship around when they're young because by the time they hit university, it's game over. Yeah, presumably immigration, and you've talked about this in other books and so on, but that's probably the, the single biggest issue where there's a disconnect between, let's say, conservative slash libertarian political leaders and the people who vote for them. And that's true across the Western world. Um, there's yeah. just basically no support for mass immigration except on the extreme left, and yet it happens. It happens in every country Presumably because, you know, Chamber of Commerces and, and, and corporations and other forces, bigger forces are are essentially pushing this. And so, yeah, it trivializes it to just say, we're well, we're divided on this issue. It's a cultural war issue. No, it is a question of civilization. And these, these norms and institutions are thousands of years in the making. They're, they're difficult to build and easy to destroy. And, yeah, it's it's not just about well, where do you stand on this issue? Okay, I'm on the other side. It's like right. No, if we lose social capital and we lose social trust, all the other institutions start to go and you just never know where that's going to go. It took again centuries to to build that that capital and it's really easy to destroy it. So Yeah, I mean there's so so much there in what you say. I mean, you know, you point exactly to some of these structural problems. Like so a good example here in this country um, conservative voters, only 7% want increased immigration. And yet that was the, the policy pursued by the recent prime minister who just today has, has essentially been kicked out. Uh, yeah. but, that, but that's an example. Like how can you actually have your voting base be, you know, only 7% support, the 71% want a reduction, and here you are going for higher numbers. I mean, the Brexit vote was almost entirely driven by I mean, for the voters, essentially, right. the immigration issue. And it's just astounding, yeah. the kind of tone deafness. But I think that speaks to the, the recruitment of these political elites, especially in the two-party, uh, you know, Westminster system or, or first-past-the-post systems. You know, you tend to get people mm. coming in from these elite universities who maybe got into conservatism through, you know, admiring Thatcher and Reagan and Ayn Rand yeah. and Hayek and all this, which is, you know, whatever. Uh, but But that's the kind of person that's being recruited in and they just do not understand, particularly the older generation, but there's just very little understanding of what's at stake uh, right. culturally when, you know, someone's not allowed to say um, a woman is an adult human female without being sort of eventually perhaps thrown in jail. I mean, if Scottish legislation right. and Canadian legislation goes through, right? I mean, it's just foundational freedoms that people fought and died for. Yeah, so that's one thing. Um, and and um the, the tactic, I suppose, of the left is to try and trivialize it and say, oh, these are divisive culture war issues. You're stoking the culture war. Very clever because the electorate is two to one against you. You're never going to win on a, in a debate. So you've got to try and sort of take this off the table by shaming uh, the other side's politicians. And most of them are only too happy to accept that <laughs> because they don't yeah, really care. Yeah. And it yeah. looks like the people in these cases in the UK and US you know, they, they care about GDP and jobs, no doubt about it, but they care about a civilization, too. And the politicians are looking at, well, the next couple of years of economic growth and sort of ignoring the civilization-wide issues, like is freedom of speech under threat, the rule of law, all these things that you mentioned. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's very interesting. 
Yeah, and, and actually, you can't do that much about the macroeconomic issues, you know, because here, like in Britain, again, you know, you've got the credit, uh, the the the, uh, the credit markets who will who will judge you on how big your deficit is. You've got people wanting more services, less taxes. I mean, it's a technical issue, you know, and, and instead, so much energy is being poured into that. And one of the reasons this government. Trust the current leader was deposed is because that's where she decided to be radical and just sort of ran into a brick wall instead of saying, actually, what do my voters want? What really counts here? Let's start to look at what's being taught in the schools. Uh, you know, let's start looking at, at, at the way our national history is being trashed and, and let's right. look at mass migration. Exactly. No, yeah. no, we're going to go after some stupid uh, few points tax rates off the high income earners. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It's just insane. But that's that's sort of the level that <laughs> whereas I think in the U.S. case, there's more hope because you have more politicians who are kind of like a youngkin in Virginia or DeSantis who are sort of taking yep. this issue. Um, and that's where I think they, they'll be sort of leading. They'll be on the leading edge of developments, I think, uh, in this. <laughs> so. Yep. Cool. Well, Matt, should we close things up? Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, that's a really nice note on which to end. Um, before we close it up, Eric, is there anything that you think we should tell people? Did we miss anything? Um, well, what have we missed? I'm, I'm trying to think of sort of things that I'm working on now, um, which are more around, yeah, this whole question of, well, okay, one thing is perhaps the downstream effects that I always mention. You know, you can say I don't care about culture wars, but if we're not able to have a conversation about reality, right? If we can't have a conversation about reality, we're not going to get mental health, right? We're not going to get crime, homelessness, right? We're, we're not, you know, all of these things, if you can't have the conversation, you can't devise the policy. So even if you don't care about culture wars per se, if you care about, you know, homelessness, immigration, mental health, crime, etc. And, and without dealing with those things, you can't deal with the issues you really want to deal with. So I, what I would say is it affects everything. Uh, and not it's not just this tiny thing going on in academia and, and in, in comedy or something. Yes, to be continued, I think. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Eric. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for chatting, Johnny. Yeah, this is great. Substack supporters have access to the three questions we ask every guest at the end of the show. They are. Can you recommend a critic of your worldview whom you respect? Um, the other side. Who is the most intelligent? Which books would you recommend? Well, um, I always recommend. Uh, what is your most controversial opinion? <laughs> most controversial opinion. Huh. Head to isf.substack.com for data-driven writing on interesting and controversial issues from a team of highly skilled writers. Although the podcast and publication are free, you can gain access to our three special questions and many more supporter perks. It's only $5 a month or $50 a year. Thank you for your support.